Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, this program is being recorded. Or as you hear it, has been recorded. Some, uh, oh, half a day to a day ago before you hear it. So I'm not in any position at this moment to say anything about Hurricane Ida or its effects on Louisiana and New Orleans. What I can say is that um, the prediction of the amount of rainfall that's likely fits the worst-case scenario offered some time ago by a whistleblower I know at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers who opined that the worst-case scenario for the new, supposedly improved system to protect New Orleans from storms and flooding, that worst-case scenario includes a hurricane with high rainfall. So we'll just we'll just wait and see. But I can say this with utter certainty. If you're watching or listening to mainstream media and they compare Ida with the damage from, quote, Hurricane Katrina in 2005, unquote, they are reporting from the ignoramus desk. Two university-based forensic engineering studies after the 2005 flood agreed that the main cause of the disaster, the catastrophe in New Orleans, was the so-called hurricane protection system built by the United States Army Corps of Engineers, and which even the Corps of Engineers on one day in 2006 admitted was a system in name only. As uh, Dr. Ray Seed, one of the authors of the report out of UC Berkeley, said in in their report, had that system worked as advertised, the worst that would have been inflicted on New Orleans by Katrina would have been, quote, wet ankles, unquote. Talking about um, perspective and getting it right, we've heard an awful lot of partisan commentary this week about the situation in Afghanistan. What I haven't heard on or seen on most of the mainstream media that I watch or read is the story from the standpoint of the Special Inspector General for Iraqi Reconstruction, John Sopko. I've been sharing his reports with you periodically on this program, and today we'll hear his memo on the lessons learned from America's longest war. That's assuming, ladies and gentlemen, we're capable of learning lessons. Hello, welcome to the show.
from the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. As I said in the intro, I'm going to share with you today some of the memo from the Special Inspector General for Iraqi Reconstruction, John Sopko, about lessons learned from America's longest war. The U.S. government has now spent 20 years and $145 billion trying to rebuild Afghanistan, its security forces, civilian government institutions, economy, and civil society. The Department of Defense has also spent $837 billion on war fighting, during which 2,443 American troops and 1,144 Allied troops have been killed and 20,000 U.S. troops injured. Afghans have faced an even greater toll. At least 66,000 Afghan troops have been killed. More than 48,000 Afghan civilians have been killed. And at least 75,000 have been injured since 2001. Both likely significant underestimates. The extraordinary costs were meant to serve a purpose, though the definition of that purpose evolved over time. At various points, the U.S. government hoped to eliminate al-Qaeda, decimate the Taliban movement that hosted it, deny all terrorist groups a safe haven in Afghanistan, build Afghan security forces so they could deny terrorists a safe haven in the future, and help the civilian government become legitimate and capable enough to win the trust of Afghans. Each goal, once accomplished, was thought to move the U.S. government one step closer to being able to depart. While there have been several areas of improvement, health care, maternal health, and education, progress has been elusive, and the prospects for sustaining this progress are dubious. The U.S. government has been often overwhelmed by the magnitude of rebuilding a country that at the time of the U.S. invasion had already seen two decades of Soviet occupation, civil war, and Taliban brutality. After conducting more than 760 interviews and reviewing thousands of government documents, our lessons learned analysis has revealed a troubled reconstruction effort that has yielded some success, but has also been marked by too many failures. Using this body of work, as well as the work of other oversight organizations, SIGAR has identified seven key lessons that span the entire 20-year campaign and can be used in other conflict zones around the globe. These lessons form the backbone of this report. 1. Strategy The U.S. government continuously struggled to develop and implement a coherent strategy for what it hoped to achieve. The challenges U.S. officials faced in creating long-term, sustainable improvements raise questions about the ability of U.S. government agencies to devise, implement, and evaluate reconstruction strategies. The division of responsibilities among agencies did not always take into account each agency's strengths and weaknesses. For example, the Department of State is supposed to lead reconstruction efforts, but it lacked the expertise and resources to take the lead and own the strategy in Afghanistan. In contrast, the Department of Defense has the necessary resources and expertise to manage strategies, but not for large-scale reconstruction missions 
with significant economic and governance components. This meant no single agency had the necessary mindset, expertise, and resources to develop and manage the strategy to rebuild Afghanistan. For the U.S. government to successfully rebuild a country, especially one still experiencing violent conflict, civilian agencies will need the necessary resources and flexibility to lead in practice, not just on paper. This poor division of labor resulted in weak strategy. While initially tied to the destruction of al-Qaeda, the strategy grew considerably to include the defeat of the Taliban, an insurgent group deeply entrenched in Afghan communities, then expanded again to include corrupt Afghan officials who undermined U.S. efforts at every turn. Meanwhile, deteriorating security compelled the mission to grow even further in scope. U.S. officials believed the solution to insecurity was pouring even more resources into Afghan institutions. But the absence of progress after the surge of civilian and military assistance between 2000 and 2011 made it clear that the fundamental problems were unlikely to be addressed by changing resource levels. The U.S. government was simply not equipped to undertake something this ambitious in such an uncompromising environment, no matter the budget. After a decade of escalation, the United States began a gradual, decade-long drawdown that steadily revealed how dependent and vulnerable the Afghan government remained. 2. Timelines The U.S. government consistently underestimated the amount of time required to rebuild Afghanistan and created unrealistic timelines and expectations that prioritized spending quickly. These choices increased corruption and reduced the effectiveness of programs. The U.S. reconstruction effort in Afghanistan could be described as 21-year reconstruction efforts rather than one 20-year effort. U.S. officials often underestimated the time and resources needed to rebuild Afghanistan, leading to short-term solutions like the surge of troops, money, and resources from 29 to 2011. U.S. officials also prioritized their own political preferences for what they wanted reconstruction to look like, rather than what they could realistically achieve, given the constraints and conditions on the ground. Early in the war, U.S. officials denied the mission resources necessary to have an impact, and implicit deadlines made the task even harder. As security deteriorated and demands on donors increased, so did pressure to demonstrate progress. U.S. officials created explicit timelines in the mistaken belief that a decision in Washington could transform the calculus of complex Afghan institutions, power brokers, and communities contested by the Taliban. By design, these timelines often ignored conditions on the ground and forced reckless compromises in U.S. programs, creating perverse incentives to spend quickly and focus on short-term unsustainable goals that could not create the conditions to allow a victorious U.S. withdrawal. Rather than reform and improve, Afghan institutions and power brokers found ways to co-opt the funds for their own purposes, which only worsened the problems these programs were meant to address. When U.S. officials eventually recognized this dynamic, they simply found new ways to ignore conditions on the ground. Troops and resources continued to draw down 
in full view of the Afghan government's inability to address instability or prevent it from worsening. Three, sustainability. Many of the institutions and infrastructure projects the United States built were not sustainable. Reconstruction programs are not like humanitarian aid. They're not meant to provide temporary relief. Instead, they serve as a foundation for building the necessary institutions of government, civil society, and commerce to sustain the country indefinitely. Every mile of road the United States built, and every government employee it trained, was thought to serve as a springboard for even more improvements and to enable the Reconstruction effort to eventually end. However, the U.S. government often failed to ensure its projects were sustainable over the long term. Billions of Reconstruction dollars were wasted as projects went unused or fell into disrepair. Demands to make fast projects incentivized U.S. officials to identify and implement short-term projects with little consideration for host government capacity and long-term sustainability. U.S. agencies were seldom judged by their projects' continued utility, but by the number of projects completed and dollars spent. Over time, U.S. policies emphasized that all U.S. reconstruction projects must be sustainable, but Afghans often lack the capacity to take responsibility for projects. In response, the U.S. government tried to help Afghan institutions build their capacity, but those institutions often could not keep up with U.S. demands for fast progress. Moreover, pervasive corruption put U.S. funds sent through the Afghan government at risk of waste, fraud, and abuse. These dynamics motivated U.S. officials to provide most assistance outside Afghan government channels. While expedient, the approach meant that Afghan officials were not getting experience in managing and sustaining U.S. reconstruction projects over the long term. As a result, even when programs were able to achieve short-term success, they often could not last, because the Afghans who would eventually take responsibility for them were poorly equipped trained, or motivated to do so. Four, personnel counterproductive civilian and military personnel policies and practices thwarted the effort. The U.S. government's inability to get the right people into the right jobs at the right times was one of the most significant failures of the mission. It is also one of the hardest to repair. U.S. personnel in Afghanistan were often unqualified and poorly trained, and those who were qualified were difficult to retain. DOD police advisors watched American TV shows to learn about policing. Civil affairs teams were mass-produced via PowerPoint presentations. And every agency experienced annual lobotomies as staff constantly rotated out, leaving successors to start from scratch and make similar mistakes all over again. These dynamics had direct effects on the quality of Reconstruction. There were often not enough staff to oversee the spending, and certainly not enough who were qualified to do so. This was particularly true for civilian agencies, such as State or the U.S. Agency for International Development. 
which should have been leading the effort, but were unable to meaningfully perform that role. This compelled the better-resourced Department of Defense to fill the void, creating tensions with civilian agencies that often had different ideas, but fewer staff to offer. 5. Insecurity Persistent insecurity severely undermined Reconstruction efforts. The absence of violence was a critical precondition for everything U.S. officials tried to do in Afghanistan. Yet the U.S. effort to rebuild the country took place while it was being torn apart. For example, helping Afghans develop a credible electoral process became even more difficult as insecurity across the country steadily worsened, intimidating voters, preventing voter registration, and closing polling stations on Election Day. In remote areas where the Taliban contested control, U.S. officials were unable to make sufficient gains to convince frightened rural Afghans of the benefits of supporting their government. Insecurity and the uncertainty that it spawns have also made Afghanistan one of the worst environments in the world to run a business. The long-term development of Afghan security forces likewise saw a number of harmful compromises driven by the immediate need to address rising insecurity. The danger meant that even programs to reintegrate former fighters faltered, as ex-combatants could not be protected from retaliation if they rejoined their communities. 6. Context The U.S. government did not understand the Afghan context and therefore failed to tailor its efforts accordingly. Effectively rebuilding Afghanistan required a detailed understanding of the country's social, economic, and political dynamics. However, U.S. officials were consistently operating in the dark, often because of the difficulty of collecting the necessary information. The U.S. government also clumsily forced Western technocratic models onto Afghan economic institutions, trained security forces in advanced weapon systems they could not understand, much less maintain, imposed formal rule of law on a country that addressed 80 to 90 percent of its disputes through informal means, and often struggled to understand or mitigate the cultural and social barriers to supporting women and girls. Without this background knowledge, U.S. officials often empowered power brokers who preyed on the population or diverted U.S. assistance away from its intended recipients to enrich and empower themselves and their allies. Lack of knowledge at the local level meant projects intended to mitigate conflict often exacerbated it and even inadvertently funded insurgents. 7. Monitoring and Evaluation U.S. government agencies rarely conducted sufficient monitoring and evaluation to understand the impact of their efforts. Monitoring and Evaluation, M&E, is the process of determining what works, what does not, and what needs to change as a result. Conceptually, m and &E is relatively straightforward. In practice, it is extremely challenging. This is especially true in a complex and unpredictable environment like Afghanistan, where staff turnover is rapid, multiple agencies must coordinate programs simultaneously, security and access restrictions make it hard to understand a program's challenges and impact, and a myriad of variables compete to influence outcomes. The absence of periodic reality checks created the risk of doing the wrong thing perfectly. A project that completed required tasks 
would be considered successful, whether or not it had achieved or contributed to broader, more important goals. SIGAR's extensive audit work on sectors spanning health, education, rule of law, women's rights, infrastructure, security assistance, and others, collectively paints a picture of U.S. agencies struggling to effectively measure results while sometimes relying on shaky data to make claims of success. The U.S. government's M&E efforts in Afghanistan have been underemphasized and understaffed because the overall campaign focused on doing as much as possible as quickly as possible rather than ensuring programs were designed well to begin with and could adapt as needed. As a result, the U.S. government missed many opportunities to identify critical flaws in its interventions or to act on those that were identified. These shortcomings endangered the lives of U.S., Afghan, and coalition government personnel and civilians and undermined progress towards strategic goals. In conclusion, this report raises critical questions about the U.S. government's ability to carry out reconstruction efforts on the scale seen in Afghanistan. As an inspector general's office charged with overseeing reconstruction spending in Afghanistan, SIGAR's approach has generally been technical. We identify specific problems and offer specific solutions. However, after 13 years of oversight, the cumulative list of systemic challenges SIGAR and other oversight bodies have identified is staggering. As former National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley told SIGAR, we just don't have a post-conflict stabilization model that works. Every time we have one of these things, it is a pickup game. I don't have confidence that if we did it again, we would do any better. This was equally apparent after the Vietnam War, when a war-weary and divided country had little appetite to engage in another similar conflict. After Vietnam, for example, the U.S. Army disbanded most active duty civil affairs units and reduced the number of foreign area officers, the Army's regionally focused experts in political military operations. Special forces moved away from counterinsurgency and instead focused on conducting small-scale operations in support of conventional forces. And USAID's global staff was gradually cut by 83%. In other words, according to former Vice Chief of Staff of the Army General Jack Keane, quote, After the Vietnam War, we purged ourselves of everything that had to do with irregular warfare or insurgency, because it had to do with how we lost that war. In hindsight, that was a bad decision, unquote. After all, declining to prepare after Vietnam did not prevent the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Instead, it ensured they would become quagmires. Rather than motivating the U.S. government to improve, the difficulty of these missions may instead encourage U.S. officials to move on and prepare for something new. According to Robert Gates, former Secretary of Defense from 2006 to 2011, quote, I have noticed too much of a tendency towards what might be called next war-itis, the propensity of much of the defense establishment to be in favor of what might be needed in a future conflict. Overall, the kinds of capabilities we will most likely need in the years ahead will often resemble the kind of capabilities we need today. The post-Afghanistan experience may be no different. As this report shows, 
There are multiple reasons to develop these capabilities and prepare for reconstruction missions in conflict-affected countries. 1. They are very expensive. For example, all war-related costs for U.S. efforts in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Pakistan over the last two decades are estimated at $6.4 trillion. 2. They usually go poorly. 3. Widespread recognition that they go poorly has not permitted U.S. officials from pursuing them. 4. Rebuilding countries mired in conflict is actually a continuous U.S. government endeavor, reflected by efforts in the Balkans and Haiti and similar efforts currently underway in Mali, Burkina Faso, Somalia, Yemen, Ukraine, and elsewhere. 5. Large reconstruction campaigns usually start small. So it would not be hard for the U.S. government to slip down this slope again somewhere else and for the outcome to be similar to that of Afghanistan. Now, news of our friend the Adam. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, safe, too safe to meet. Safe, safe, too safe to meet. By the way, if you missed the introduction, way back at the beginning of the program, that memo about lessons learned in Afghanistan was from the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, John Sopko. Now news of the, uh, our friend the Adam. Federal regulators here in this country, the United States, say they're considering increasing oversight of Georgia Power's nuclear expansion at Plant Votal, a long-troubled and deeply delayed project, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It threatens to saddle Georgians with billions of dollars in cost overruns. They can afford it. They got Atlanta. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission this week released its findings from a special inspection conducted earlier in the summer at the project south of Augusta, the not-routine review, the first of its kind on the project after more than a decade of construction, followed up on the company's disclosure earlier this year about quality control issues. Among the issues, electrical cables and systems apparently installed incorrectly including too closely together, raising the risk that a fire could knock out redundant safety-related equipment. The cables were related to reactor coolant pumps, is all, and equipment designed to safely shut down the nuclear reactor. Workers knew about some of the issues, but didn't flag them in a system designed to ensure that problems are handled correctly. Instead, the issues weren't solved sooner, and, guess what, were repeated. The NRC's report said the apparent violations of federal requirements will lead it to increase its oversight if it decides to finalize its findings at the current level. The company has 90 days to respond. Sweden has less than a week, on the other hand, to decide where to store its nuclear waste or risk having the lights go out. I thought we solved the nuclear waste problem along... The Scandinavian country is running out of space to store the waste produced by its six reactors, which supply about a third of the nation's power. 
Without a decision, according to Time magazine, before the end of the month, nuclear operators say they'll have to start halting plants in three years. That would trigger a national power crisis and put Sweden's net zero target at risk. Sweden's case highlights, according to Time, a contentious subject for the nuclear industry, with most countries yet have to find a permanent solution to store their spent fuel. Really? Who could have thunk it? To make matters worse, Japan shocked the world earlier this year and announced plans, those plans you know about, to dump all that treated radioactive water into the Pacific from Fouke. European countries have taken different stances on nuclear power. Germany opted to exit. France and the UK are relying on reactors to reach their emissions goals. Sweden counts on renewables for a large part of its power production. will need nuclear as well as emission cuts from its heavy industry and transport to reach its net zero goal. By 2045, stand by. It's been more than a decade since the Swedish Nuclear Fuel and Waste Management Company, that's an ambitious name, filed an application to build a repository, a method that involved putting spent fuel in copper canisters and burying them 500 meters under the ground in bentonite clay has already been approved by neighboring Finland, Russia has opted for expensive recycling. In October, the company responsible for disposing of all of Sweden's nuclear waste said it had already won approvals from all necessary courts, authorities, and even from the municipality where it wants to build the site. But the national government is yet to approve it. This is about there being a reliable solution and needing to move ahead with the process, said the chief executive officer of the company responsible for disposing of the waste. Sweden needs to make a decision to avoid exceeding the permit for the interim storage currently being used by the industry. But with the recycling adopted by Russia yet to be cost-effective and Finland still to convince other nations that their methodology will withstand for at least 100,000 years without rusting or leaking, the Swedish government is in a tight spot. A decision of this magnitude needs to take all the time that is necessary, said the environmental minister. The government is instead proposing to decide on expanding the intermediate storage site and then consider the application to build the permanent repository. Too little is known about melted fuel inside damaged reactors at Fouke, even a decade after the disaster, to be able to tell whether its decommissioning can be finished as planned by 2051 says a nuclear agency official of the U.N. Quote, I don't know, and I don't know if anybody knows, says Christopher Sari, head of the IAEA team in reviewing the plant's cleanup progress. Well, if he doesn't know, and nobody knows, then nobody knows. The biggest challenge, removing and managing highly radioactive fuel debris from the three damaged reactors... Quote, we need to gather more information on the fuel debris and more experience on the retrieval of the fuel debris, uh, fuel debris to know if the plan can be completed as expected in the next 30 years. Cleanup plan, that's what he says. The cleanup plan depends on how the melted fuel needs to be handled for long-term storage and management. I wish I had long-term storage and management, but that's the difference. More than 2 million visitors flock each year to California's San Onofre State Beach. That's a re- how a report begins in The Guardian. 
it um, goes on to talk about the um, the elephant in the beach, three point six million pounds of nuclear waste from the group of nuclear reactors that shut down nearly a decade ago at San Onofre. Decades of political gridlock have left it indefinitely stranded, susceptible to threats including corrosion, earthquakes, and sea level rise. It is already, uh, San Onofre, had a little thing with uh, the canisters in which the waste is stored being dropped. They're okay. Don't worry about them. San Onofre reactors are among dozens across the United States phasing out. Experts say they best represent the uncertain future of nuclear energy. The ones at San Onofre. It's a combination of failures, really, said Gregory Jasko, who chaired the NRC between 2009 and 2012. The waste is the byproduct of the San Onofre nuclear generating station. Federal regulators had already cited Southern California Edison, the operator of the plants, for several safety issues, including leaking radioactive waste and falsified firewatch records. But when a new steam generator began leaking a small amount of radioactivity in January 2012, just one year after it was replaced, it was the most serious problem yet. A subsequent report from the NRC's inspector general found federal inspectors had overlooked red flags in 2009 and that Edison had replaced its own steam generators without proper approval. That's when the uh, company decided to shut down the plant for good. Under the Waste Policy Act of 1982, the government was supposed to move waste to a centralized remote federal facility starting in 1998. Without a government-designated place to store the waste, the California Coastal Commission in 2015 approved an installation at San Onofre to store it until 2035. San Onofre is not the only place where waste is left stranded, according to the Guardian. As more nuclear sites shut down, communities across the country are stuck with the waste left behind. Spent fuel is stored at 76 reactor sites in 34 states, according to the Department of Energy. Handling those stockpiles has been an afterthought to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, according to Allison McFarlane, another former chair of the commission. It was not a big topic at the NRC, unfortunately, she said. In the nuclear industry in general, the back end of the nuclear cycle gets very little attention. Unquote. The waste is buried about 100 feet from the shoreline along one of the nation's biggest thoroughfares, the I-5, and not far from a pair of faults that experts say could generate a 7.4-magnitude earthquake. Another potential problem is corrosion. The Coastal Commission noted the site could have a serious impact on the environment down the line, including on coastal access and marine life. The installation would eventually be exposed to coastal flooding and erosion hazards beyond its design capacity, or else would require protection by replacing or ex- expanding the existing shoreline armoring, unquote, the commission. Concerns have also been raised about government oversight of the site. Just after the plant closed, Edison began seeking exemptions from the operating rules from nuclear plants because it's closed. 
We don't need to, we don't need those rules. San Onofre is not the only closed reactor to receive exemptions. The risk of accidents decreases when a plant isn't operating. But generally, it's not a really a great practice, says the former NRC chair, Jasco. Jasco. If the NRC is regulating by exemption, it means there's something wrong with the rules, he says. When the uh, casks, cask or casks were dropped, Southern California Edison was fined $116,000, but allowed to continue loading casks with waste within a year. The CEO of Holtec, the manufacturer of the canisters, told a community meeting a few years ago that the canisters are difficult to repair. It's not practical to repair a canister if it was damaged, said Chris Singh. He walked that statement back last year, but questions remain as to what San Onofre would do if a canister did appear damaged. The NRC, says a spokesman, has thoroughly reviewed this issue, believes the spent fuel can be stored safely on-site at the beach at San Onofre. It can't be moved off-site because there's no federally approved disposal site for high-level waste. Although we are currently reviewing two applications for interim storage facilities. JASCO said many potential problems might have been avoided if Edison had considered another location for its fuel instead of leaving it on the reactor site at the beach or if it had more adequately consulted with the community. Says Rod Ewing, nuclear security professor at Stanford, the problem with our safety analysis approach is we spend a lot of time proving things are safe. We don't spend much time imagining how systems will fail. And I think the latter is what's most important, he says. Unquote. I'll see you at the beach. You better hurry up. You know summertime is coming to an end. Coming to an end. Coming to an end. You're still fun to have. Grab your honey and be sure to tell a friend. Tell a friend. Tell a just cruise down along the coast Don't let barbed wire get in your way Hey, hey I know a real special place Where nothing but the isotopes decay Waste Beach The place that time forgot
Till you strip down to your suit And you cool right off in the sea Cool off in the sea Cool off in the sea Then back on dry land And the sun can warm you right up for free Warm for free Warm for free When the wind starts to blow You don't have to peel away from the sight That's right Just get your squad near a rod And stay nice and toasty all night Waste Beach Your skin is getting a tan Waste Beach Your insides are needing a scan Thunkett. Big spike in uh, COVID cases in the area around the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally and in uh, Tokyo. <laughs> Speaking of the Olympics, according to Jules Boykoff, a former Olympic soccer player and a professor at the University of Oregon, over the last 50 years, every Olympics has overshot its budget by an average of 100, 179%. He argues that construction companies and hospitality businesses thrive after a city wins the Olympic bid, but there's no one to hold accountable when things go wrong. Quote, the problem with the Olympics is that the positive examples are so few and far between. I think it is important to remember the Olympics make money for people. They just don't make money for everybody. They make money for those who are already doing really well financially, unquote. Judith Grant Long, an associate professor of sports management, at the University of Michigan, agrees the disappointment mostly comes when cities expect a significant return on their investment. Quote, if you're going to plan to have a wonderful party and you're going to invite all your friends to this wonderful party, you're expecting to pay the bill. And perhaps you reap benefits in terms of social relationships and networks and so forth. But the return on investment is negative, and that's what the Olympics is. It's basically a party. Unquote. And what happens at a party? Well, you throw away a lot of food afterwards. Organizers of the 2020 Paralympics insist they're reducing the amount of food waste at the Games after revealing roughly 130,000 meals were discarded during the Olympics, according to InsideTheGames.biz. The lunchboxes had been prepared for staff and volunteers between July 3 and August 3 across 20 Olympic venues, only to be thrown away, according to Tokyo 2020. An investigation into food wastage was launched by organizers after it was reported that around 4,000 lunchboxes were discarded just at the opening ceremony. 
That was a spectacular discarding, though, you have to admit. Tokyo 2020 confirmed that food being thrown away was cut to 20% of the amount ordered during the later part of the Olympics, early August. The the organizing committee has been trying to ensure that all the lunchboxes are consumed by communicating in an email to each party placing an order, urging them to use them, says the statement. Quote, initially there were concerns that we had discarded a lot of food. We have been addressing this issue, unquote. Better than eating that food, but the issue tastes better. News of the Olympics, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, the Apologies of the Week. We're so sorry. Deadline Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I, I think they're great rapids. I don't know. A man upset over state-ordered coronavirus restrictions was sentenced to just over six years in prison this week for planning to kidnap the governor of Michigan. That uh, was a significant break in terms of the length of his sentence that reflected his quick decision to cooperate and help agents build cases against others. Ty Garbin admitted his role in the alleged scheme weeks after his arrest last fall. He's among six men charged in federal court, the only one to plead guilty so far. Key victory for prosecutors as they try to prove an astonishing plot against the others, according to the Associated Press. Garbin apologized to Governor Whitmer, Gretchen Whitmer, who was not in court, and her family. Quote, I cannot even begin to imagine the amount of stress and fear her family felt because of my actions. And for that, I'm truly sorry, the 25-year-old aviation mechanic told the judge. In his plea agreement, Garbin said the six men trained at his property near Luther, Michigan, constructed a shoot house to resemble Whitmer's vacation home and assaulting it with firearms. Well, that's good prep. Deadline West Palm Beach, Florida, Palm Beach County Superintendent Michael Burke apologized this week for what he called an inappropriate comment he made one day earlier about guns. I said guns. During a back-to-school breakfast hosted by the Chamber of Commerce, a woman in the audience asked Burke if there was anything the community could do to support students and the school district of Palm Beach County during this challenging time. Yes, he said. Send lawyers, guns, and money, please. That was met by a roar of laughter and applause from the crowd. Burke then quickly backtracked on his comments. You can hold the guns, but the lawyers and money might come in handy, he said with a smile on his face. During his opening remarks at a subsequent school board meeting, Burke apologized for the comments, saying they were lyrics to one of his favorite songs, Lawyers, Guns, and Money by Warren Zavon. Quote, while this response was made in jest to send lawyers guns and money, it was fully intended to be a lighthearted quip, Burke said. But I understand guns should not have been referenced in any manner. I apologize and take full responsibility for my inappropriate comment. The comment came at an already highly charged time for the school district, which is grappling with emerging COVID cases among children, as well as a fierce controversy, guess what, over the district's universal mask mandate. You seen those people who show up at school board meetings? They are off the leash. Tokyo 2020 organizers have been left red-faced after playing the wrong anthem recently, just this week, for Russian Paralympic Committee following Mikhail Astashov's track cycling success 
at the Velodrome this week. Astashov struck gold in the men's C1 3,000-meter individual pursuit before taking to the podium to receive his medal. But instead of listening to Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto, Tokyo 20 played the International Paralympic Committee's anthem. They have their own anthem. Couldn't use the Olympic... After noticing the blunder, the decision was taken to hold the ceremony again to allow the correct anthem to be performed. Masa Takaya, spokesperson for Tokyo 2020, said organizers have issued an apology to Astashov, the RPC, and the IPC for the, quote, operational mistake. Following discussions immediately after the ceremony, we apologized to the athlete and asked the medalist to take to the stage again where the correct anthem was played. It was purely an operational mistake, said Takaya. We would like to sincerely apologize to the medalists and to the committees. At Chandur, and the chief executive of America's second largest wireless network, T-Mobile, apologized to millions of customers who had had their data stolen in a hack of the company's systems. The hack resulted in the exposure of personal information, your names, your driver's license numbers, and social security numbers. As many as 40 million current and former T-Mobile customers, the company said, no credit card information was lost. We didn't live up to the expectations we have for ourselves to protect our customers, said CEO Mike Sievert in a blog post. The breach is the fourth in five years for T-Mobile, according to a security and risk analyst at the research firm Forrester. That suggests the company's security just isn't up to the task. The challenging thing is... It's very difficult to know from the outside why things like this keep happening, said the analyst. Yeah, it's a puzzler. And Toyota said this week it had suspended all self-driving transportation pods, called e-pallets, at the Tokyo Paralympics Village a day after one of the vehicles collided with an injured, a visually impaired pedestrian. Can't get more embarrassing than that, can it? In a YouTube video, Toyota Chief Executive Akio Toyoda, with a D, apologized for the incident and said he offered to meet the person but was unable to do so. (laughs) A vehicle is stronger than a person, so I was obviously worried about how they were, he said. Toyota said the incident showed the difficulty for the self-driving vehicle to operate in the special circumstances of the Olympic Village during the Paralympics with people there who are visually impaired or who have other disabilities. Yeah, you wouldn't encounter that in the streets. It shows that autonomous vehicles are not yet realistic for normal roads, he said. Unquote the guy from Toyota. Apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, it's copyrighted in a special way.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, the tip of the show chapeau, definitely, to uh, John Sopko, the ins- Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, and to his entire staff, I think he has a staff, for their hard work and persistence and willingness to um, tell the apparently not very pleasing facts about America's longest war, for which um, he was rewarded with an amazing lack of attention. That never happens. But that will conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over the same radio stations, radio, and on your audio device of choice whenever you want it. And it would be just like we survived. If you would join us then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego desk and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address for this program, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. That's a collector's item. And the playlist of the music heard here. All and more. Oh, so much more at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.